Welcome back to the Less Than Podcast. I'm your host, Ari Mizell. Nick is elsewhere today in the world of coding. And my guest today is Dr. Erica Reicher, who is a psychologist and a author of What Great Parents Do, 75 Simple Strategies for Raising Kids Who Thrive. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you, Ari. I'm happy to be here. So uh, did, you, did you start on this path originally when you got into, uh, into, I guess, into your doctorate, into your research, or were you doing more general psychology at first? Well, actually, no. Um, I had a really interesting path into what I'm doing now. I, I, you know, I did go to grad school and got a PhD in psychology and human development. But after grad school, I got very interested in the business world and kind of went off on a, uh, <laughs> a sidebar for, I don't know, five, six years, I think. Uh, into the business world. And then when I first had kids, I started to rethink what I wanted to be doing, how I wanted to spend my time and ended up coming back to psychology, but this time focusing on clinical work. Before, my training was really more about research psychology. And so it's interesting because when I think about this book, um, it really definitely draws on my business experience because I really am focusing on best practices and I'm trying to communicate things in a way that are just really brief and action-oriented and easy to digest and not at all academic. It's the opposite of that. Um, but I want it also to be rooted in science and based in good research. And so I tried to bring all those things together and wrote the book that I wished I had had when I became a parent. Well, and, which is great. I mean, and, and that's, that, I feel like when people are solving their own problems, that's sometimes when like, the best work comes out. So, uh, and, and how, how many yeah. kids do you have and how old are they? I have two kids. And how old yeah. are they? So I have one in middle school and one in preschool. Okay, cool. Um, so I, m- most people I think listening to the podcast know this, but you don't. So I, I have four kids. So I have uh, three boys. Yeah. The oldest is almost five. Then there's two twins that are three and a half. And then I have an eight-month-old uh-huh. daughter. Yeah, so you're busy. <laughs> yes, yes, we're a little busy. Um, and it's interesting also. So I, I'm also an only child. So every everything uh-huh. is like a social mm. experiment. <laughs> so yeah. Um, so the first thing that I have to ask is that you know I I feel like parenting is something that people it's like one of those rare things where people have zero experience with it, but as soon as they become it, then they know more than a lot of other people. In some cases, there's there's definitely parents who are more humble about that, and I, I think I tried to be. But you also people get very personal about their parenting choices, even if they're mm-hmm. you know, just based on their own feelings, right? So what? What sort of qualifies you or makes it okay for you to be a parenting you know, expert, basically, or to be able to <laughs> how they should be coaching or how they should be parenting, rather? Yeah, that's actually a good question. I, um, I don't call myself a parenting expert because I have kids, although I would say when I, when, I, when I did have kids, it made me a lot more empathetic and compassionate for what it's really like. You know, when I was in, uh, a friend of mine actually in grad school said something like this, which I think speaks to that question because we were both studying psychology and human development. And she said, well, I was a perfect parent until I had kids because, you know, when it's all theory um, and research, you can say, well, yes, we should respond this way. And yes, we should do it that way. And of course, um, but when you actually have these little creatures and you're emotionally engaged with them and um, that whole emotional component just makes everything so much harder. So um, I, I would say the reason that I feel um, able to speak about parenting with some authority is really because of the training that I did. You know, I spent 
six years in the PhD program studying psychology and human development. And after that, I did clinical training. So, um, you know, the, the expertise that I bring to it is really based on the research that I studied and what I've learned. Um, and then the, I think the, the way that I like to talk about it is really as a parent. So I'm writing as a psychologist for myself and my, you know, peers as parents. So I'm really in both worlds. You know, I understand what a parent needs, what a parent struggles with, what it's like to be in those situations, what it feels like, how hard it actually is to sometimes do the things we wish we could do differently in those moments. But the information that I bring really comes from the researcher part of my brain and not from the parenting part, if that makes sense. So it's really a mix. Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. Um, uh, one of the, the, the best ways to back up any argument is with data and numbers. So um, obviously, yeah, the better we can do. So one of, the, one of the things that I find to be an issue, and this is, you know, we've talked about this before we start recording, that some of the things that I might find challenging other people would as well. So I, one of the things yep. that I always find interesting to me is I find myself often uh, assigning an intention two things that the kids might do that mm-hmm. clearly they don't clearly they, they don't have. Uh, and then of course, we're yeah. in situations to those. So is that something right. that's common? <laughs> Definitely. And I, you know, because I, um, you know, part of my practice is I'm a cognitive behavioral therapist. So I work with individuals and couples, some of whom have no kids. Um, and then the other part of my practice is support and education for parents. And that includes, you know, the workshops that I do, the classes, the parent coaching and the book, right? Um, so, but one of the things that I talk about is how these things are very related because, you know, what you're talking about is this idea that how we think about things will influence how we respond to them. And that's kind of a, a cornerstone idea of cognitive behavior therapy. Right. You know, another way of saying this that I talk about in the workshops is how we respond to our kids or really to anything depends on how we perceive what we're doing. Exactly. As you said, if you see them as having a certain intention and that's the story you have in your head, then you'll respond to that. So, you know, if we see our kids as being defiant, right? If the story we have is, oh, they're being defiant, they're testing me, you know, that, that can create a sense of anger or frustration or feelings like that. And then we'll respond with those thoughts and those feelings, you know, usually out of anger or frustration. But if we, re- if we frame it differently and see their behavior, in most cases, it's, it's really more like curiosity, Right. You know, and testing even in itself is being curious. You know, I talk in the book about how it's really useful to see our kids as little scientists or little explorers who are really out to figure out how the world works and how the people in it in their lives work and respond. And so they're trying to get answers to questions like, how do you work? How do I get what I want from you? What will you do if I ignore you, yell at you? Etc. 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 And so, you know, when we can see our kids' behavior really as curiosity in that most open sense, then it gives us, I think, a little bit more space and patience to respond matter-of-factly um, in a way that doesn't escalate the situation and make it worse. Right? Because if we just come to the conclusion like, oh, they're being defiant, then we're more likely to yell or be aggravated than to respond patiently and in a way that addresses not just the situation but doesn't cause future problems <laughs> or create a bad dynamic yeah and, and it makes total sense and I, this is it's something that i work on all the time where if something happens that i'm not thrilled with and and again this happens less and less but i might respond with like why would you do that you know and then as soon as the words yeah. come out it's like it's a ridiculous question you know why not <laughs> yeah <laughs> right right exactly right. It, 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 i mean exactly so uh, it, it is interesting but the, i mean how 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 do you I mean, and I, and I have some understanding of how cognitive behavioral therapy works, but how do you, people begin to frame those things differently? How do you train yourself to frame things in that light? 
Yeah, well, that's a big question. But, you know, the very short answer is, you know, it starts with self-awareness. We first have to learn how to pay attention to what we're thinking is going on, you know, the kind of ticker tape in our head. You know, there's lots of ways to do that. Therapy is one. Meditation is another increasingly popular one. Talking to friends and families. But you really, you have to pay attention because if you're not paying attention to your thoughts and the feelings and, you know, how your body is feeling, which also can give you a sign that something's up one way or another, then it's very hard to catch those things before you react to them. So, uh, you know, paying attention. Also, self-care is very, very important, you know. So in addition to paying attention, in order to be able to have the, 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 will, the, the wherewithal and the patience to be paying attention and to pause, when we pause and respond, it's a really different thing than to react, right? So if we're feeling angry and we don't pause, we might just yell or storm out of the room right? That's reacting to our angry feeling, which is probably reacting to an angry thought or a thought about, you know, someone's being defiant or they're, you know, they're ignoring me on purpose. But if we can pause, you know, take a deep breath, um, we can then respond in a way that will hopefully help to resolve the situation instead of making it worse, right? right so right. it's important to do good self-care. So that includes, you know, it's, I can't really underscore how important it is for parents and kids too to get enough sleep. And for adults, on average, that's seven to nine hours, which is a lot more than most people are getting. And the really interesting thing about sleep and sleep research is that we know if you ask someone who is chronically sleep deprived, and you can test that in a lab, say, you know, how well do you think you're functioning relative to how you would function if you were getting, you know, your um, an adequate amount of sleep? And they go, eh. I feel pretty, I'm, I'm okay. I have coffee and I'm doing fine. But actually, if you test them, um, if you, you know, can do in the lab tests of their um, emotional regulation and their cognitive abilities, they are actually worse and they don't even know it. So we ourselves are not, a, the message here is we ourselves are not good judges of how well we're doing and, and whether or not we need more sleep. Your friends and family are probably better judges or your coworkers. Um, you know, they'll be able to tell if you're cranky or short or edgy. Um, so, but you know, like I said, the majority of adults need at least nine, uh, seven hours of sleep and most of us aren't getting it. And that makes it, there's a direct correlation between not having enough sleep and not being able to control our impulses, whether it's wow. our impulse to go eat, you know, uh, cookies for lunch, or it's our impulse to yell at a coworker who frustrated us, right? All, none of those things are really productive for us, but it's very hard not to do them when we're not getting our basic biological needs met including sleep and, and others. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and, and now in terms of parenting strategies as, I guess, as parents, you know, plural. So there's, there's not always, like, I feel like parents aren't always on the same page about how to handle certain situations. Yeah. Right. Right. So what, I mean, other than just saying like, we'll talk about this later or something like what, what are mm -hmm. some of the strategies yeah. to do with that? Well, Right, right. Later is now <laughs> because, right. you know, we put things off. We're, we tend to just keep putting them off for lots of reasons, right? Um, and it is a hard conversation to have. I will say big picture, you know, it is, it is ideal and preferable and it makes things easier for everybody if both parents are on the same page about how to handle situations and what the family rules are. That makes it easier for everybody, the kids and the parents. But it, the most, most important thing is that each parent is consistent in and of themselves and isn't being unpredictable by changing how they respond. You know, sometimes yes, sometimes no. 
uh, and being consistent about enforcing whatever your family rules are. So that's the most important thing. But um, because it's so much easier for everybody to be on the same page, it's worthwhile having a conversation with your partner. And certainly there's a lot of things that are, um, you know, an issue of parenting style, right? And, and, and so there's a lot of room for flexibility. But there are some things where research is pretty definitive now. And you can say, yeah, that's not really a style issue. That's just not useful or that doesn't work or it's ineffective or it's problematic. For example, you know, if you spank your kids, just use one that's really clear. We're really clear from the research now that spanking um, is not only um, productive, it is uh, negative. And so, you know, if that's an issue in a family where someone says, well, that's, that's how my parents did it. That's how, that's how I did it. Other cultures do it. Um, there's, there's not a lot of reason to accept that, but you know, there's still a lot of room for flexibility in so many other ways of parenting. So it just comes down to, you know, what are the issues and talking about with your partner, well, why do you think that and how do you think that's going to play out in the long term? Because, um, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the book is we have to balance our short game parenting with our long game parenting. You know, what we do in the here and now to get our kids out the door, to get them to do their chores, to get them to, um, you know, go to sleep, brush their teeth, take a bath, um, get home on time, whatever those things are, how we enforce our rules you know, whether we're doing it with yelling and aggression, that's going to have an impact on our long game of parenting. And our long game of parenting is raising kids who are happy and kind and confident and also having a good relationship with them where they enjoy our company and want to come home and visit us when they're adults, not because they have to. So if our go-to strategy for getting things done in the here and now and getting through our day is a lot of yelling or aggression or force, then the long game of parenting is going to be uh, negatively affected by that. So we have to, you know, keep in mind, you know, so spanking, right? Spanking is not, um, it can be ineffective, but also it can appear to work. Okay, I spank them and now they don't do that anymore, at least in front of you. Um, yes. But in the long game, it has so many detrimental effects. It is just not something <laughs> that that we want to be doing as parents because it's it's not beneficial to kids in any way and it's it's really negative. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that that totally makes sense. Uh, so th- this might be a, a tough one to think of, but w- what do you find is one of the easiest parenting mistakes to fix? Hmm. Okay. Well, <laughs> let's see. To fix. Well, I think um, I think one of the most common parenting mistakes that I see is is from not is from not knowing that what we're saying is having a negative impact. So, uh, and you hear it a lot. So we often will talk to our kids in a way without thinking about, hmm, what's the impact of our words on our kids when they, when we repeat them again and again and again, which we will do over the course of the 20 years or so they're living with us. And so a lot of times parents say things to kids like, well, we use blame, shame, or fear. I talk about this in the book. So, and, and if I said that to you, you know, are you using blame, shame, or fear? A lot of parents would say, oh, no, 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 I don't do that at all. But actually, when we say things like, you are making me crazy, that's blaming your kids. That's making them responsibility for how you feel, mm-hmm. right? When actually how you feel, you're mostly responsible for them. And, and of course, they're part of that. But ultimately, how you feel um, is based on how you think about what's happening and how you regulate your own feelings, right? So, so kids are not responsible for our feelings, so we should avoid blaming them. Or we might say things like, this is also really common. What's wrong with you? Yes. That's another really common thing you hear parents saying. That's shame, right? What is wrong with you? Right? It's talking about the child as a person as if there is something wrong with them. And I don't think we as parents, if we think about it consciously, want our kids to be going around asking themselves, yeah, what is wrong with me? Hmm. 
there's something wrong with me. Mom and dad thinks there's something wrong with me. What is it? What is it? What is it? Um, that's not useful either. Um, fear, which seems to be less common um, these days, but you still will see is things like you better do it or else. Um, you know, those kinds of things, right? Or, you know, lifting a hand or swatting them on the bottom or whatever. So using fear and force. So we want to avoid those things, but we, we say things that are, that are, um, that aren't helpful and that can, again, cause bigger problems down the road. So, so a really easy way to, let's say, address that is instead to say something like, I don't like that behavior, um, which sounds really strange, I think, when you first say it, maybe to yourself, but actually what's important about that is you're making it really clear, hey, this is not about you as a person or what's important to you. It's about how you're behaving and behavior is a choice. And that behavior that you're choosing to do <laughs> is not okay because, right, whatever the reason is. That's like so I think up, it's, you are not your thoughts, CBT, like to a T, right? <laughs> exactly, right. Yeah. So you see the connection between me as a cognitive behavioral therapist. But it's important to know that, you know, our, there's nothing wrong with the thoughts and feelings we're having. We just may not be able to do what we're, you know, feeling or say what we're thinking, right? right. And so, so a behavior, which includes what we say and what we do. Um, is the problem. So it's so much easier just to replace all of those other sayings. So instead of saying, what's wrong with you, or you're making me crazy, or you better do it or else, just say, I don't like that behavior because, or when you do blank, you know, it's not okay because, or, you know, whatever it is. But it's then you taking responsibility for how you feel about what they're doing, but also making clear like that thing that you're doing is not okay because it violates this rule of our house or whatever the case is. Um, and then it doesn't invite children to reflect on what's wrong with them and invites them to reflect on, well, what could you do differently? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, right. Okay. And that makes total sense. And that does seem like sort of a, a, a fairly straightforward fix. Um, so yeah. What uh, now when, uh, and, oh, here's another one actually is about like siblings. And this is particularly interesting to me, not just because mm -hmm. I have four kids, but because I have no siblings. So um, right. Right. there are things that, that, I'm up a lot that just like never makes sense. I mean, my wife has uh, a sister, so she'll sort of uh, just brush it off and be like, well, this is your only child. Um, but mm -hmm. especially with, and now that we have four, it's actually kind of better. I feel like the, with the three boys on their own, it was hmm. an interesting dynamic where things were sort of trade off. But um, so the question there is how do you, uh, I want to think of how to frame this the right way. This actually, this, this relates very well to the explanation you just gave, I think, but uh, different kids have different thoughts and different behaviors and siblings influence each other in different ways. You know, like my, what the, mm -hmm. the twins that we have are completely different people when they're together versus mm -hmm. when they're individual. So mm -hmm. how do you, mm -hmm. um, I don't think honor is the right word, but basically that's all I can come up with. Like, how do you sort of uh, individualize that, I guess, based on, yeah. Well, individualize what exactly? Well, so like the obviously you can say like I don't like the behavior in general, right? But if if they're doing the behavior because they're like mimicking, for example, or like it's not really like they like they're not necessarily relating to the behavior. And I may be completely off base here. This is just like how I see things sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe the reason that they're doing something is just because it's it's completely situational, you know, like because yeah. It, yeah. So, and they're not even really totally aware of the fact that they're sort of like crossing boundaries or, you know, fighting too rough or playing yeah. too rough or whatever. Like, so how do you sort of separate that out that they understand that, that behavior, like there's behavior that makes sense in a situation with others versus like the way that they are on their own? 
Mm-hmm. Well, I, there's a couple things that I'm thinking of about your question. You know, the first is, you know, generally if you have rules about what's okay and what's not okay, like it's not okay to hit yeah. or, you know, whatever it is, you know, you need to, you need to enforce those kinds of things consistently, of course, but there's also lots of things that kids do that they don't know is wrong. And the younger they are, the more likely that is to happen. And it's really important to give your kids the benefit of the doubt. And in the book, I talk about this and I talk about, you know, see your kids as a work in progress with the intent to do better. Right. And if you have that frame, these are, you know, my kids are works in progress and they're trying to get better. And when we can respond to, you know, the things they do that are quote unquote bad behavior in that way, you know, you can say things to your, you know, let's say your three-year-old flushes your wedding ring down the toilet. Has that <laughs> right? happened? Um, <laughs> um, not to me, thankfully, but it certainly, those kinds of things happen because kids are being curious and they don't really know that when something gets flushed down the toilet necessarily, it's gone probably forever. And even if you could get it back, you may not want it anymore. But, um, you know, so, so that can make someone really angry. But if we remind ourselves like, oh, hey, you know, like they probably didn't even realize that it's potentially gone forever. You, you know, you can have this tactic of, you know, honey, you, you probably didn't know. That's a, a, my favorite way to you know, start these conversations. You probably didn't know, but when you flush that down the toilet, we can't get it back. And that watch or the, that ring was really important to me. And I'm really sad and feeling also kind of mad about the fact that you did that, Right please don't flush anything down the toilet besides what's supposed to go in there because we can't get it back. Right. And so, you know, I talk about this as giving fair warning, you know, you cannot assume that what seems obvious as an infraction to us is necessarily something that is obvious to our kids, especially for younger kids. The younger they are, the more that's true. Like there's going to be lots of things where, you know, you come home and they've just drawn all over the wall, which seems obviously like not something you should do, but Hey, (laughs) if you're, in preschool, drawing on the wall is a super fun thing, and it doesn't even occur to you that that would be not a that would be bad. Why? <laughs> so a lot of the things that seem clear to us seem kind of arbitrary to our kids. So we have to give them the benefit of the doubt and explain it to them. I think. Yeah. Okay. You know? no, that, that makes um, sense. Yeah. Uh, so but right, honoring so. our kids' individuality is really more about letting them be who they are, even when you know. So I talk about this in the book as I love you just the way you are, even when I don't like your behavior. That's the message we want to send our kids. I love you. I don't like that behavior. (laughs) Let's talk about how to change that behavior. That behavior is not necessarily who you are. My wife says that quite a bit. She'll be like, I love you. I love you. But I, you know, I can't let you do this right now. Like that kind of thing. So yeah, that makes Mm -hmm. a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So, all right. The last question I always like to ask on these interviews is what are your top three pieces of advice for people to be more effective? And you can interpret that however you like. (laughs) <laughs> for people or parents, <laughs> actually, it's interesting because um, one of the one of the nice bits of feedback I've gotten about the book is that a lot of these um, strategies apply in all relationships, not just your relationship with your kids. So it's interesting that you frame the question that way. I don't know if that was um, accidental or on purpose, but you know, the things that I talk about in the book, I use examples from a parent-child relationship, but they apply to adults and coworkers and siblings and your parents um, and any relationship that's important to you, these things can, can work well. Um, So one of my favorite tips is to meet feelings with feelings. This is number six in the book. Um, And just for your listeners, the book is organized into 75 really short bite-sized summaries of parenting best practices. So the average one is just one to two pages. Um, The shortest one is like a paragraph and the longest one I think is four pages, but it's super easy to read and digest. And it's a focus on, What's the best practice and how can you use it? Um, Okay, so number six is, um, I call it empathy, but it really just means meeting feeling with feelings. And it's a way to create closeness in a relationship and also de-escalate conflict. So 
you know, if your kid says, well, you have young kids, so um, I guess I can use an example there. Um, you know, your child's, uh, I don't know, let's say you buy them an ice cream cone and they're running around the way they do and then the ice cream cone falls. And let's say you said to them, you know, hey, if you keep running, that ice cream cone might fall. Stop running. So you've warned them, but they're doing it anyway because have a hard time controlling what they feel like doing or uh-huh. their works in progress. And the ice cream cone falls and they flip out <laughs> as some kids do. It's really upsetting to them. We might say, you know, see, I told you not to run and now your ice cream cone fell down and I'm not going to get you another one because I told you that was going to happen. You did it anyway. Um, you could say that, but it's not going to be helpful. And there's a way to respond to the situation that doesn't mean you have to get them another ice cream cone, but it makes them feel at least understood and your concern and it contributes to a better relationship. So that might sound like, you know, oh, honey, you were running around and your ice cream fell. That's so upsetting to you, right? So that's meeting feelings with feelings, right? Instead of trying to talk our kids out of their feelings and you know, another thing might be, you might say, honey, it's just an ice cream cone. It's no big deal. You'll have another one another day. Like, no big deal. Don't cry. So now we're trying to talk our kids out of their feelings. To us, the ice cream cone is no big deal. But to them, it is. So we're not respecting their reality. And we're probably going to escalate the situation um, by arguing with them or telling them not to feel the way they're feeling. So it's much more effective to meet feelings with feelings and say, just, hey, you know, that looks so upsetting to you. Like, I can see why you'd be really upset that you, your ice cream now is ruined. That's such a bummer. It doesn't mean you have to get them a new ice cream cone. So for example, you know, if you have a kid who hates wearing their car seat, that's really common too. Yeah. You know, you could say, well, yeah, you have to wear your car seat because it's safe. And if you don't, and we get in an accident, you could get hurt. So that's using reason. But if you meet feelings with feelings, you would say instead something like, honey, I know you really hate riding in the car seat. It's itchy and it's squeezy and it's scratchy and you don't like it. And it's, you know, you really wish you didn't have to wear it. That's all you have to say. You don't have to take the car seat off. (laughs) So meeting feelings with feelings is just a way of creating a connection. And then you can decide whether or not you're going to actually change that situation. But in the case of a car seat, you're not. In the case of an ice cream cone, you might get them a new one, but you don't have to. You don't have to fix it. So that's important. I'd say that's my number one tip. Um, you know, number two would be something I talked about before is keep in mind your long game of parenting. Your long game is, you know, building a long-term relationship with your kids. So it's based on mutual trust and mutual respect. And also if you're a parent, you know, raising happy, kind, and confident kids. And so we have to be careful um, not to always protect our kids from failure or disappointment or discomfort, even though that feels really good <laughs> for us and for them in the short term. But in the long term, we have to ask ourselves, you know, what is the long-term implication of our kids not learning coping skills in these situations, both how to cope with whatever situation came up, like their homework is late and now, or they left it in the car and now, you know, your partner drove the car into San Francisco and there's no way to get the homework. You know, what kind of creative problem solving can your kid bring to bear on that? But also how do they address the emotional aspect of that situation? Their, you know, fear of getting, of, you know, being in trouble, their um, discomfort, their whatever it is. So in every situation, kids have to learn how to deal with the feelings they have about the situation and also how to deal with the situation itself, right? Um, And if we jump in all the time and do that for them, fix fix it or step in, it's much better to let them do their best with supportive coaching from our side, but less is more because we need to let our kids try, make mistakes, try again, right? And so, you know, in most situations, we want to hold back, even though I think that's really, really hard because it's painful for us to see our kids suffer in any way. 
but that's it's still important to let them to let them do that. Um, so that's two. Let's see what's a third one. Uh, hmm. There's so many. Um, you know, keeping a distinction. Uh, I touched on this before, so I'll just kind of reinforce this idea. You know, making sure that you keep an emotional connection with your kids, even when you discipline their behavior. That is that is like the sweet spot right there of parenting. So we have to be really careful that we don't um, hmm, negatively impact um, our relationship with our kids because that emotional connection is the cornerstone for really everything to work well, to have a happy family life, to have kids that feel comfortable with themselves, with other people, with their other relationships outside, right? But on the other hand, we still need to have firm boundaries that we maintain matter-of-factly, right? So being able to have clear and firm boundaries that we enforce matter-of-factly is important and to do that in a way that still maintains an emotional connection with them. That is what my book is really about is how do you do that? Because if we're yelling at our kids or forcing them to do it or shaming them into it or manipulating them into it or whatever the case is, we will eventually undermine that relationship. Um, and then I think we've lost. Well, I mean, that's just such a wealth of information. Thank you so much for that. That's a, that's actually, it's one of the more detailed actually answers people give to that question before. And it was really good. So, uh, Good. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Dr. Uh, Erica, Dr. Reicher, and, and I'm not sure which one you preferred. Actually, I didn't even ask you, but thank you for sharing all of that information with us. We're going to have links in the show notes to uh, your website and the book. And if there's uh, anything else that you'd like people to particularly pay attention to, let me know. All right. Like right now or, yeah, right, right. <laughs> or later? On? Yeah. Oh gosh, I don't know. I mean, I guess I would say the one thing about this this book that um, people have said, and I actually tend to agree with it, is it's a great book to leave on your bedside table or leave in your bathroom because <laughs> it was really written in a way that you can kind of read it for just a minute or two and get a useful idea that you can use in your family life, uh, and then come back to it later. So it's really um, supposed to be really easy to dip in and dip out and really easy to come back and reference. And it's not the kind of book you're supposed to or even need to read from cover to cover. So um, the format, I think, is really particular to this book. And one of the reasons that I wrote it is I just wanted to have one single place with really short summaries of the most useful information about the art and science of parenting that really shows people how it looks in practice, right? Because we have these good ideas like, okay, um, don't yell at your kids a lot. Great. All right. Um, how do I actually do that? And what do I do when they're not listening to me? So the book is, you know, tries to answer those questions and show you actually how to manage your family life in a way that minimizes yelling and minimizes nagging and minimizes hard feelings and minimizes conflict because it's about not only having kids who thrive, but also we want to have a happy family life and I want parents to enjoy parenting. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you again so much. And, uh, I, I really You're so welcome. everyone should check out the book. All right.